data, artificial intelligence, the metaverse, crypto and Web3, and quantum computing are just a few of the technology innovations that are changing the way we live, work, and experience the universe. I am your host, Ganesh Padmanabhan, and this is Stories in AI, a podcast where we explore the various facets of technologies like AI, its impact on individuals, organizations, and the society. You will hear from a variety of experts and practitioners, their personal stories, their best practices, and advice to put technology to work. I hope you enjoy this engaging conversations. Now, before we begin, a note about our sponsor. This episode is sponsored by Experian, whom you may know as the Consumer Credit Bureau, but they are at heart a data company. When you're buying a car or home, sending your kids to college, or borrowing to grow your business, Experian is most likely helping you behind the scenes. They unlock the power of data to make better decisions, get access to financial services, and to prevent crime, unlocking a whole world of opportunities for individuals and organizations. Find out more at Experian.com. In this episode, I speak with Charles Franklin, who's a senior vice president and head of analytics and AI products at Experian. Now, Charles is an amazing, amazing leader, and he is a very well-versed, not just on the technology side, but what does it take to productize artificial intelligence products and machine learning products and drive adoption at scale in a very complex and large organization like Experian. So he shares his experiences, his lessons, where he... um, gained a lot of experience doing things the right way, the wrong way, and uh, it was a fascinating discussion. I totally enjoyed it. I hope you like it too. Charles, welcome to Stories in AI. How are you today? I'm good. Thank you for having me. Thank you for making the time and thank you for jumping on. Why don't you kick us off with who is Charles Franklin? Give me your background, um, your story, and what do you do at Experian? Sure. So, uh, yeah, my name is Charles. Uh, today, I lead uh, analytics and AI product development for Experian um, Global, uh, which is a very interesting space to be in, sitting on some of the some of the world's most sensitive uh, but also powerful data sets. Absolutely. Um, my backstory: so, in, in my heart, I'm a I'm a maths guy, as we say back in England, where I'm from. Uh, so, uh, loved maths growing up. Studied it in college. Um, had a brief loss of faith in my youth where I thought I should diversify out of numbers and become a, a management consultant so I could learn to work with people. Um, and then somehow within that field, found a way back to, to analytics. So I ended up uh, working in uh, enterprise decision software development and eventually leading the data science practice at, uh, at Olive Wine, where I worked before. So uh, almost all math all the way, but uh, with a little diversion into, uh, that is into awesome. strategy and, and human work. Yeah, that's awesome. And and uh, what in 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 your mandate in your uh, role at Experian? I mean, talk a little bit more about it. Like you have a global team, and you you mentioned data sets. So w- what's the thing that you know you're you're trying to disrupt with with all that data uh, every day at Experian? Yeah, so I think there's there's two lenses on it, right? Now, I think why don't I start with the one that affects people in the real world, right? So there are a bunch of decisions that are made today that are really important for 
for people's lives, right? So do you get a mortgage? How much do you have to pay for that mortgage? Uh, if you have to get hospital treatment, does that claim get paid for? Things like that. Um, and a lot of them are made on less information and kind of more fragile information than maybe you might yep. think. So our, our mission in Experian Analytics is we've actually got a lot of data about what are safe and unsafe decisions to make in those spaces. Yep. And we want to enrich that, make it as powerful as possible and ultimately get to decisions and outcomes for people that are fair um, and that don't have people you know, cut out of, uh, of credit who should have access uh, or unfairly denied care, anything like that. So really our mission is just make data more powerful to get better results for people out in the world. Um, if you look at that from a business perspective, what we're doing is taking a business that used to be really a, a consulting model, right? So mm -hmm. there'd be a, a particular client who wanted to tackle this problem for themselves. Maybe it's a lender, right? Um, we would do a project with them, work out what kind of people they're trying to lend to, do the analysis, give them better models that help them make better decisions. Um, what we're doing as a business is trying to automate that. So that's a service that anybody can get on demand very quickly without it needing to be you know, a 16 week project with, with Experian or with a consulting firm uh, to get access to that level of insight. Um, so the, the goal is better decisions on tap for everybody, right? That's, that's what we're aiming for. That is, that's awesome. And I, and I did, uh, you know, hear you say the word fairness and we'll come back to that because there's a lot of the straddling the lines in these decisions that you're making, you know, how do you be fair, how you, how you are ethical and responsible in the way you make these recommendations and stuff. But before we go in there, zoom out and, uh, lay out how you see the AI market today. I mean, what is, what do you see from your vantage point? What's working? What's not working? What are the big, you know, use cases that are, you know, generating value? What's a lot of snake oil and hype? So give me your lay of the land, how you view the market. Yeah. Oh man. It's so varied, right? Is, is where I'd start. Um, so you've got everything from, um, pure hype in some areas to okay. truly extreme innovation that's already beginning to drive value all the way to completely underpenetrated areas where there's almost nothing um, yep. Yep. Uh, and the potential is huge. So if I kind of pick out uh, different points on the scale, uh, I'll say something which is unfair. Um, so I think self-driving vehicles are not pure hype because clearly some progress has been made. But I think we're beginning to appreciate that the gap between being able to drive on a known set of roads, responding to known typical conditions and yep. complete flexibility to handle any situation is quite large. Um, now in that we've still got a ton of value, right? We've got highly assisted driving on Teslas or you know, a lot of the major manufacturers are catching up. But I think the, the dream of just falling asleep at the wheel and having that be okay is still a little bit away. Still far away. Yep. Yeah, on areas that I see as dynamic and and beginning to be transformative, right? A lot of the recent breakthroughs in generative AI and in particular transformer architectures, uh, it's exciting to see those start to become real products. Um, yep. So when you look at something like like Grammarly and related products that are actually starting AI to become, and, yep. right? Uh, you can get assistance writing marketing copy. You can get style guides, um, and that stuff is real. It's powerful. Similarly, in art, right? If you look at Mid Journey, you look at Dali. That, that stuff is incredible. Um, uh, when you get a bit closer to my space in in B two B, I think it's very well penetrated in marketing, right? Uh, and in mm -hmm. broadly marketing related use cases. So we're very good at building profiles of consumers. We're good at selecting ads to throw at them or not throw at them. We're good at routing yeah. them to interesting media. Um, uh, but my sense is maybe that's it. Right? I don't know that we've got that far outside of that space. Um, so a lot of the a lot of the markets that I serve with Experian 
are actually pretty underpenetrated, right? Um, so if you look at lending, which is one of our biggest areas, um, most loans are still adjudicated on the basis of something like a FICO score, or there's typically an equivalent in most countries. Um, and that score is actually a, it's, it's a, actually a model. <laughs> People don't necessarily realize this, but yeah. The, yeah. the amount of weight that's given to your payment history, um, the amount of weight that is given to how much credit yeah, you carry. Credit yeah, exactly. Right. It's calculated statistically based on um, how well people have been able to keep up with their payments uh, who had a similar profile. Um, but the statistics are pretty rudimentary. The statistics that have been around since you know the last 250 years. Um, um, and uh, they're pretty static. So by their nature, these scores are very generic and they're calculated for typically everybody in a country. Uh, and there could be quite a lot of difference between you and me and somebody else who's, who's looking to get a loan. Um, so when you actually look at the number of lenders who are using uh, machine learning, never mind what you might think of as full AI to make lending decisions, it's, it's much smaller than you might think. The market is really dominated by these generic basic statistical models. Um, mm. And that's where I think there's there's a massive opportunity to improve. Uh, step one, I think, is just with the information we have today, using better models to make better decisions, using some of the power of ML that's come through over the past 30 years. Um, yep. But beyond that, uh, there's a huge opportunity to enrich the data that we use, the information that we use when thinking about how people should interact with the financial system. Um, yep. And you do see some businesses start to do that, right? You've got businesses like Upstart who are all about using non-traditional data to make make better lending decisions. Um, but it's very early, so that's why I'm kind of happy to be here. Uh, I don't think we're there yet. And I think uh, we'll get better results as we go. No, it's awesome, and, I, and and you're you're so right. It's such a you know still early market, so much fragmentation and uh, really distorted value creation across the entire spectrum. And you know, the, and I, I had a uh, chat with um, um, Joseph Siroj, who was the uh, CTO for AI at Microsoft and CTO at the, um, at uh, Compass, the real estate company. And he talks about how, look, if you look at some of the most common use cases that are just really popular, search, for example, we don't realize it, but you know, there's a lot of probabilistic matching and ranking and things that happens behind the scenes, which is an indicator of saying, you know, so like there's a lot of things that are quote unquote AI that are sometimes, you know, like the, the recommendation we see on Facebook, when you look for a shoe on, uh, you, you search for shoes on amazon.com, next time you're on Instagram, you get shoe ads, right? So there's a lot of, you know, AI or machine learning that goes into it, but the real practical use that, you know, affects, you know, traditional, you know, rich industries with a lot of history, like, you know, financial services for that matter, you know, it's still very rudimentary across the entire space. So. Uh, I'm glad you're working on, uh, and, and your team is actually uh, moving the moving the needle on that too. Now, how is it to be doing AI in a very traditional uh, and honestly old school industry like financial services? Right. I'm not going to ask you a question specifically of uh, Experian, but like we've established that AI is important, right? But there is enough. Um, um, stigma enough uh you know this is the way things are being done kind of things in there in these traditional industries right if you were to make a case to me saying this is why we should not use ai what would that look like yeah so i think it's um it has its challenges uh so there, there's there's some push and some pull right um so on the one hand i think 
many decision makers in financial services know this technology is out there and feel some pressure to use it. Um, on the other hand, the industry is rightly very heavily regulated and rightly very concerned with introducing methodologies that might be unfair and might have counterproductive effects. Yep. Um, uh, so I would say the typical reasons that, uh, that we see for slower adoption um, are around that. So you hear lenders fairly concerned about regulatory compliance. Mm -hmm. So for example, in the US, it's mandatory that you're able to explain to an applicant why they did not get credit or they did not get as much credit as they applied for. Um, and with these traditional models like a FICO score, it's very easy to do. You say, well, you got this many points um, because of your current balances. If you'd only had a hundred bucks, then actually it would have been okay. And we might've approved you. So this is what you can do to improve your score. So there is, I think, a reasonable concern, which is solvable, but a reasonable concern of yeah, yeah, yeah. how do you reproduce that um, with an ML model, which might be much more complicated. Um, uh, the other the other typical concern is around fairness, right? Um, uh, so in part, just because these models are new um, and in part because they are a little bit less simple and a little bit less easy to break down than the traditional approaches, um, often people will worry about if I put this new thing in production and start using it to make decisions, um, will I inadvertently introduce bias into my system and how do I know that I'm not doing that? Right? Mm. And those, I think, uh, are good reasons to proceed with humility and caution. Um, mm -hmm. But I do also like to turn it around and say, well, okay, what's your case for not using AI right, right now? Because what's happening effectively is we are knowingly, by choice, making critical decisions that affect people's lives with models that are less accurate than they could be. So the reason to do that has to be quite good in order to justify that continued inaccuracy. And, uh, you know, maybe to quantify that, when you look at the lift you can get from a machine learning based credit decision algorithm over a generic um, based, credit yeah. score, which is typically available in the market, um, you could be looking at easily uh, five, eight, 10 points improvement in, uh, um, uh, in Gini or KS, uh, which just to translate that into real world terms, yeah. maybe one in three or one in four times, the traditional score is making the wrong decision and the ML score would have made the right decision. Right? Um, mm. and that's a lot of people who are getting the wrong call, who are being turned down for a credit sure. card who shouldn't be. Um, so yes, we need to be very careful about fairness. It's, it's essential. In fact, we can't do it without... Um, and yes, we need to make sure that what we do is explainable to the applicant, most importantly, and explainable to the regulator who's going to ask the question. Um, but if we don't act, we've got to have a pretty good reason that we're going to tell our customers, and we're going to tell our regulators why we're okay just making wrong calls all the time because it was too scary to embrace better technology, right? So that's, that's I think, the, the transition that, that financial services finds itself in right now, uh, specifically in the space of, of consumer credit. Yeah, no, it, it it makes total sense. I mean, it's a, a couple of things just to summarize, right? One is at a at a base level, you know, since it's regulated industry, black box models and lack of explainability doesn't cut it. You have to be able to dial back, understand the provenance of how decisions are being made, what was used in the criteria. And then basically, if you're making decisions for people or making decisions on people's lives, you have to give them the the path out of it. Like, I can approve this credit, but here is what you can do to make it make it different. With black box models and traditional, you know, machine learning models, it becomes a little bit more harder to do that, right? I mean, there are tools. It's not an unsolvable problem, as you said. 
The second thing is introducing bias, not just the fact that you're doing things fair or not, but it's like, you know, since you're now doing, you know, you have all these other, uh, um, you know, dependencies of getting that model to be working, the data you use, you know, what is accessible versus not. I mean, whether there's bias in the data itself that you use to actually train the models, all of that can actually lead to introducing bias in the system, which I mean, you can argue, was it already there or not? Probably, but then, you know, you had no way to actually know that or not. Now you know for sure that you're introducing bias, right? So that's, that's a very interesting, uh, you know, argument you made. And on the flip side, I think it's a, it almost is like a, you know, uh, a, a call on the risk you want to take on either sides, right? So you're basically saying, look, it's status quo, um, you know, where I'm doing, what I know, I'm, I have a bounded box of how much I'm wrong in the decisions I make without machine learning, without AI systems. And I'm comfortable with it, right? I know I'm doing wrong, right. but everybody's comfortable. Not just me, my regulators are comfortable with it. They're all- we, we as a society have decided yeah. this is okay. Right? okay right? I mean, it's just, it's just classic. And, uh, but, you know, if I move that, um, I think it's the, this comes to me as like, as it uh, comes across as the way that like, it's the, it's a little bit of the fear of the unknown too, right? Because you don't know, if you know for a fact with the same level of confidence, that when you go to this new system, your new bounding box for the errors you'll make is always going to be X minus Y. You'll probably be a lot more comfortable making that transition. Don't you think? Uh, I think that's right. And that's, that's actually what we see some of, our, um, some of our clients doing in this space, right? So they may not be willing to say, okay, I'm going to cut over tomorrow. What a lot of them have done, and this varies interestingly by country, but what, what a lot of them have done is say, okay, we'll switch on the machine learning model for me in the background, yeah. and then let's watch it, right? Let's see how it does versus my incumbent. Let's verify that it actually is fair. Let's verify that it's more accurate. And then once it's got three, six, nine, 12 months of track record under its belt, we have much higher confidence uh, that it's actually going to cut that that error box down, right? Uh, yeah. Relative to what you might get from you know me in a sales pitch. <laughs> <laughs> rightly should be approached with a degree of skepticism. So yes, I think um, I think there are good reasons to proceed carefully um, and to kind of keep the limitations in mind. But I think they're addressable. They're addressable with evidence and they're addressable with techniques that are at this point pretty well tested. Yeah, you know, so take, 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 us, uh, take me back to the beginning, right? When you're putting together an AI strategy for Experian and, and this group that you, that you lead and stuff, how did you guys start off that journey? I mean, for there's a lot of audience, a lot of folks in the audience who are, you know, executives like you in a large organization in all different kinds of industries, and they're all some of them are not even on the journey yet, and they're trying to figure out how do I get started, right? So take me back to the beginning and tell us like what was the like, and I know it's probably easier to look back and say, hey, these are the five things that we did, and four of them actually worked well. This one didn't. Sure, right? one of them, right? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, take us back to the uh, origin story and how did you actually lay the strategy in place? How did you start building this capability? Because you had two problems, right? One was not just using uh, AI and machine learning to transform the way some processes are done, but you're also changing a business model. It was heavily services oriented. You're moving to a product oriented, you know, uh, business model as well. So you're enabling multiple vectors here, which is, I mean, it's analogous to anybody else who's actually appraising AI. You're using it not for the technology, you're using it to transform something and usually your business or some kind of a business strategy and so forth. So take us back to the origin. Tell us how you, you guys went about it. Yeah, I mean, the, the true answer is 
we've placed a number of experiments and some of them work and some of them don't, and we have to be willing to adapt and learn as we go, right? That's, that's I think, the most important principle because I think we've failed as many times as we've succeeded. The important thing is to spend more time on the successes than you do on the failures. Um, yep. <laughs> uh, but with that disclaimer applied, I think up front, uh, we were looking for a couple of things. So one is um, uh, decisions that are impactful, where we believe there's a need, and where adding machine learning and AI into the mix uh, actually makes a meaningful difference, right? Um, mm. So if, there's, if there is a decision that is very impactful, but the gain from adding an ML model is negligible, or it just adds difficulty to your operation for very little upside, that's normally not a good spot, right? On the other hand, there are lots of cool things you could predict that don't result in consequential decisions sure. or, or value being created for um, for people, right? Um, so that was kind of focus area number one. Um, the other was domains where we as the Experian team knew the space quite well and were bullish on our ability to automate um, and kind of industrialize what's historically been a pretty custom tailor-made process to actually generate the models. Um, turn that into more of an end-to-end -end recipe that we can supply on demand. Um, and so with that, we honed in on you know, a few use cases. Um, and I'd say that the ones we considered in scope were mostly influenced by where we think the value is. Right? Mm -hmm. So ML is powerful and people actually need it. Uh, and then the order in which we went after them was mostly informed by our abilities. So we started with lending, which actually is quite hard because it's extremely regulated, uh, as we just talked yeah. about but it's an area we know extremely well. Right? So we thought this is hard, but we believe we can do it because it's something we know deeply. Um, and over time we've been extending into different parts of the consumer finance life cycle, um, banking a lot of the hard won lessons that we've had in, uh, in credit risk. Um, yeah. And we started to extend into some of the other industries that, uh, that experience serves, um, most notably so far as in, uh, in healthcare and in the health revenue cycle. Um, that's one where we're seeing real success as well. Yeah. Interesting. You know, it's it's a, it's, a, it's a couple of themes that I picked out of that, right? One is, like I said, like it's, it's just the nature of machine learning. It's experimentation, right? You have to just go try different things, place a number of bets, have the courage to stick through it, right? And then see and, and learn from the data that actually it, it generates, right? And then uh, one is that. Second, I like, I like what you said about you wanted to start with areas that a you have a pretty strong domain expertise in, right? So you know that at least it's the the, the other way of I, I I used to tell practitioners in ML is like you want to solve a problem with machine learning, first do it without machine learning, right? right? And then use machine learning to automate what you were doing. So it's like capturing the knowledge, the context, and you know you want to increase the scale of that variables that you actually look for to make a decision. All of that were is where machine learning comes to play. But you need to understand the process. You need to know to know when what goods looks like and what the answer needs to be and stuff. And I think a lot of um, a lot of companies, especially traditional industries like who've been has this long, rich history, they miss that very important point. I've said I've actually, I mean, kids you not, I've actually um, uh, worked with some really large manufacturing, you know, old school industrial companies. And they're going directly on to digital marketing and how do I use AI to, you know, get more engagement from my suppliers on a digital channel. I'm like, that's way far from where you are today. So even if you actually build something that's useful, you wouldn't even realize it's actually useful. <laughs> right. So it was one of those yeah. uh, uh, things in there. 
And then uh, on the industries, right? So, so, so you know, you, you mentioned healthcare, revenue cycle management. Is it is there uh, an industry like when you look at the market and based on you guys are in a lot of the industries too? Is it a particular industry that's further ahead in this, like especially on the traditional side? I'm like I'm not talking the internet native companies and stuff, right? But is there a particular industry that you see is further ahead using machine learning and AI to um, um, to to drive transformation for themselves? Uh, I think um, when we look at so when we look at non-tech native industries, um, mm-hmm. I actually think consumer retail is getting there, right? Um, and they're getting there because they had to because they were being disrupted and having their lunch stolen by tech natives. Um, so that's where we see where I think I've seen kind of meaningful value driving adoption of ML and AI technology um, in kind of consumer personalization, one-on-one engagement, marketing, you see it in retail, you see it in travel. I think um, Mm. I I wouldn't say the capability pervaded the entire business in the way that you would expect to see in one of the big tech names, um, but definitely it's getting there. Um, I think in areas that I work, finance is somewhere in the middle and it depends very much on which part of the business that you're in. So, uh, you know, I neglected to mention this earlier, but if you're in the trading side, mm-hmm. then they're all over it, right? Like uh, when you've sure. got the right to take risks and you own the results of those risks, uh, you see very enthusiastic, very enthusiastic adoption. Um, where it's consumer facing and the regulation is tighter, right? Um, that's where understandably we've seen slower adoption, but it's beginning to get there. Um, I think health is, um, health is probably one of the slowest. Um, and that probably shouldn't shock us too much, right? So one reason to go slowly is if it's regulated and the decisions are important. One reason to go very slowly is if it's literally life or death, right? You probably don't want to be exactly. too experimental with that unless you've got real science and real conviction what you're doing is, is working. Um, so that's why I think what, what we're seeing in healthcare is most of the innovation is more on the administrative and regulated. Well, let me rephrase. I think people are innovating in the care side, but um, it's early, right? Where things I think are starting to come through is more on automation of clerical work, revenue yeah. cycle, all the back office functions that particularly in the US form a huge part of the um, the health industry, mostly invisible. Um, that is historically a very inefficient set of processes that's grown enormously complex over time. Um, and it's ripe for disruption through automation. Um, not all of that necessarily needs to be AI, but actually there are some applications creeping in which which are, uh, sure. and that's, that's interesting to see. You know, it's interesting, you know, even even like on the back office side is one thing, but even knowledge workers on the front lines, right? As long as you're, here's the thing that I, I, we, we, um, we've noticed it like often, right? Everybody tries to come and solve like a big impactful problem up front, get in front, like provide diagnosis for patients or something like that. But if you just, just take that away and say, look at the cognitive workload of the frontline workers, be it nurses, doctors, or be it care managers and caregivers and uh, case managers in, in insurance companies, there's a huge opportunity just to augment their workflows by servicing right. insight that they would otherwise not do. So the decision, uh, the life or death decision is still left to the individual who have enough context, but you use AI to improve their contextual understanding of the situation, right? And, and I think a lot of the uh, opportunities we're seeing in healthcare is purely around like, how do you increase the context and how do you, you know, like definitely the, the one one side of the argument is go after those processes that are really old school, like revenue cycle, as you said, the back office automation, your invoice processing, bad debt, you know, risk prediction, all that kind of stuff. But then the other side of this is actually just go and 
you know, kind of position this as an, an empowering augmentor for the, the, the really smart people to make them even more smarter, right? Or remove the variance of smart versus not, right? So things like that. So it's interesting. I think if we stay ambitious, but let go of the um, most aspirational target that the machine should be able to handle the whole thing from end to end, and we allow an expert in the loop system, then I think a lot of areas which may take a long time to fully automate become very tractable and we can still be transformative, right? Yeah, so you know, it includes self-driving that and include care. Um, just because we can't solve 100% of it doesn't mean we can't make progress. You know, I, I had a guest and who was talking about saying, you know, like uh, make a very controversial statement, but the fact is AI is still largely run by researchers and academics today. The, the AI agenda for the world is still dominated by research and thing. And I'm like, why did you say that? And he was like talking about, look, I mean, we talk about trying to get to, I mean, GPT-3 gets, I mean, it democratizes the ability for everybody to be creative. Yes, it's, it used a billion parameters to get there and stuff. But the more important thing to actually really think about or talk about is how do you really, I mean, do the non-sexy thing, but then focus on what you're trying to do as an impact, right? And folks in the industry like you and I, we are really focused on trying to add value, the business value or value to the customer and increasing that. Not so much about precision recall metrics that I mark against a benchmark and I'm just now 5% better than my last model that my peer in the industry actually wrote about, right? So there is a huge shift that I'm hoping that, you know, the I, I, historically in all the, uh, all other technologies, the practitioners and industry folks have really won that argument, if you will, to set the agenda for it. And I think in AI and ML, we're still so early in the journey. It's great that the research is actually spearheading the entire transformation for the industry. But, you know, folks like you, folks like, you know, uh, the others that we have on the show are the ones who are actually making it practical, making it adaptable, and then really, you know, turning that into something more useful for humankind in general, right? So um, it's a, it's a, <laughs> it's an interesting uh, challenge. So what are, Charles, some of the problems that are still unsolved in AI? I mean, like we talked a little bit about hype versus what's real early on, but in your world, in your land, right? And I'm also using this as a way to actually think through how you think about it in terms of when you're partnering with other smaller companies, larger companies, right? What are still some of the, you know, top of the mind problems that you're trying to solve? Yeah, I think in, um, if I go back to finance, right? Um, one area that I characterize as partially solved and partially unsolved is, um, the combination of explainability and non-traditional data sources. So historically, right, uh, as we said before, you have to explain to a consumer why you didn't give them what they wanted. And that's fair and we need to maintain that. Yep. Right? Actually, it's it's perfectly possible to sustain that with an ML model. Um, yep. So uh, as long as your model is uh, what's called locally explainable, um, you don't need to be able to describe for every consumer in the world, what their results would have been at different points, as long as I can say to you, Ganesh, here's why we made the decision for you. Um, yep. And most of the time, it's possible to do that. There are many well-tested methods which tell you, uh, for example, even though the model is not linear, um, had you kept up with your payments on your credit card for the past three months, actually, you would have passed, right? Um, that's yep. perfectly possible. Uh, where it gets challenging is if you start to try and add non-traditional data sources, which don't correlate as obviously to something that is in the applicant's control. Right? Um, 
So let's say um, they provide some text references from a landlord who says, hey, you know, yes, Charles uh, always paid, paid his rent on time, except for that one time when, you know, he had a thing happening at work and I kind of let him off the hook. Um, that's a little bit harder to explain because you can still say, well, actually, the reason that the model said no is we inspected this section of the, um, the, the landlord's quote and that kind of triggered a negative a negative pressure on the overall prediction. Um, but it's less obvious to me as an applicant what I should do about that, right? Convince my landlord to use different words or is there like an action I could have taken? Um, so at least in finance, there is this tricky but necessary step of yep. converting what might be a very rich raw extended data set mm. into a set of attributes which are meaningfully understandable to a consumer and which inform action that they can take to get better results. Um, it's not enough for the model just to be super predictive. Um, so I think we're making great progress in the industry is making great progress in beginning to add ML using attributes that are easy to explain. Um, I think it is still an unsolved problem of how we build models that are as accurate as they can be, which include as rich a view as possible of you, your financial history, anything that you think a lender should know about you when deciding whether or not to issue credit, yep. while still giving you fair and um, understandable insight on what you can do to make your app look better. Um, that is hard. I don't think it's solved yet, but it's something we're looking at. No, it's, that's awesome. Charles, this is great. Um, what's your advice for other peers of yours in the industry when they're depending, irrespective of where they are on the journey? I mean, give me your top three um, do you want to give them? Okay. I'm going to try and pick three that have slightly different flavors. Um, so, uh, I'll start with what you said, which is work back from the impact, right? Um, uh, for people in industry, right? If you're in research, I would say the opposite, like, please do research, figure out the coolest, most untested frontier, and then make it available to all of us. And I love you for it. Right. But if you're trying to actually build a business, create value for a business, transform a business or sell something. You've got to start with the impact. Um, and if there's somewhere that AI will plug in to make that impact more powerful, great. But it's rare that just an AI business or an AI solution by itself um, is going to give you everything that you need. Uh, okay. 90% of the work is going to be is going to be problem solving. So that'll be advice number one. Yeah. Uh, number two I would give to practitioners is please look at your data. <laughs> so, <laughs> Plot your data, uh, the number of mistakes that have happened in uh, machine learning work, uh, which could have been avoided if we'd looked at the data more carefully, is at this stage embarrassing. <laughs> All of us in the, in the industry should know better at this stage. Um, um, but I mean that in a few ways, right? So, you know, yeah, look, yeah, at yeah. Yeah. look at univariate plots. Um, like think about what your data is saying versus what you expect about the people or the system that it is you're trying to model. Um, it goes back to what we were talking earlier, right? Which is like, well, if you understand your data, know what the data actually says, then it'll be easy for you to know whether an algorithm actually predicted something that right. you know, is true or wrong or completely off base, right? So, but understanding the data is fundamental. I agree. Right. And so many of the gotchas come from, come from this, whether it's, it turns out that representative sampling is still a problem in ML, right? So if yeah. your training data set doesn't match the behavior of your test data set, your yeah. model is toast, right? <laughs> Regardless of how smart it is. Exactly. So plot your data. Uh, the third thing I would say is um, invest in your 
engineering skills, or if you're a leader, invest in your team's engineering capability. Um, because delivering products that create value, uh, there's, there is still today an R&D component, but increasingly, you know, the algorithm R&D is not the hard part of it, it's the implementation, right? Yeah. Um, and that is now heavily a software engineering, data engineering, MLOps problem, creating efficient, well-oiled cycles of uh, data into model, into application, into new data. Um, uh, if you're bad at that, your product will probably not succeed, even if your algorithms are brilliant. So um, I would say awesome. um, think about the applications, look at your data and invest in engineering. Those would be my three. Awesome. Look, you know, work back from the impact, look at your data, you know, invest in engineering. Love it. Charles, where can the viewers and listeners get in touch with you? How can they find you on the internet? Uh, you can find me on LinkedIn. Feel free to message me anytime. Uh, I'm I'm the Charles Franklin who works for Experian. Um, uh, or you can reach me at my uh, my Experian email address, which is charles.franklin at youguessedit.com. So uh, <laughs> either of those works well. Um, That's awesome. Be active on, on both channels. Charles, thanks so much for spending the time. This was an amazing discussion. I think we covered a lot of ground all the way from you know, where's the industry at? What do you actually look for? What's the argument for not doing AI? And why would you still have those concerns? I love the the, the two areas that you really poked into explainability and, and, and fairness, if you will. And then coming back to what would you do? And I had some of those, the, the, the it's so, um, you know, I, I got to tell you, it's so rare that, you know, people, a lot of folks who are practitioners who are in AI, who are trying to put this in practice, the, the, the last three things, the advice that you gave around the fundamentals, like so many people get it wrong. So many people get it wrong. And they, they learn it. I mean, classically, they try different things and they come back and say, oh, I should have looked at my data better. Oh, I thought the Jupyter Notebook was going to solve my problem, but oh, I had to package it as an application? Oh, wait a minute. Oh, for like, sure. If, if I'm giving this advice, it's because I've screwed up every one of these, right? <laughs> that's, the, uh, that's the reality. That is awesome. Painfully learned. Yeah. So thanks, Charles. Thanks so much for spending the time today. Great discussion. Thanks for having me, Ganesh. All right, cheers. See you soon. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you did, I encourage you to do three things. Number one, share with your friends and family. If someone else can learn from this, get inspired and take action, they need to. Number two, subscribe so you do not miss a single episode. You can do it at your favorite podcast location or at youtube.com. Number three, let me know if you have any questions, comments, or ideas for me or my guests. And check out storiesinai.com to access show notes and more resources. Thank you for listening. See you next time.